Brian. Eileen. <laughs> so we're here. It's the first episode of AI Meets Life Sci, and it's actually happening. It's going out to the world as soon as we click publish. How long have you talked about this? <laughs> Ooh, um, I think it started in July, embarrassingly. Uh, we had a couple of conversations, and I think we realized that we were kindred spirits, and we both had a passion for AI, and you're on the pharma side, and I'm on the med tech side, and it was like, well, maybe if we're passionate about AI and we have a lot of questions about AI and machine learning, maybe others in our industry um, do too. But then uh, months and months and months later, here we are. <laughs> well, I think a few things come to mind, like the spaces, promising, confusing, scary at times. So I think having leading voices kind of shed light on the space is going to be helpful. I think with AI meets LifeSci, it's really about AI, the, the algorithms going into it, uh, the technology itself, the industry, not necessarily the people behind the technology. And I think that's going to be a really interesting, more kind of technical discussion, really digging into what does AI mean in context. So maybe that's the key. Context, 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 why it matters, how it's going to affect the industry. Also, the um, drug discovery and biotech angle, I think are interesting because the average cost of developing a drug, like there's different estimates, but two point something billion dollars takes 10 plus years oftentimes. And the promise with AI is you could shave off dollars, you could shave off like time from that. And I think the, the pandemic kind of rattled people's expectations as to what's possible. And we probably can't extrapolate from that for everything, but maybe AI can help streamline. And we had this kind of like one year development timeframe for the vaccines, but maybe we'll see something not that fast with AI, maybe faster than 10 years <laughs> and maybe cheaper than 2.6 or 2.3, I think it is billion dollars. I'm definitely more optimistic that that is a goal we can reach than I was before we started this series. And actually, the two interviews uh, that we are showcasing as part of our inaugural episode, I think, hint to that, how we can uh, speed up uh, not just development of vaccines or technologies, uh, but adoption as well. And I think one of the themes that we're learning so far, we filmed now three, four episodes. I think uh, the big theme is how... Uh, really leveraging AI responsibly uh, can improve workflows. And I think all of that feeds to the end goal. Uh, so to that point, we want to take some time and introduce our two interviews. Sure. Excellent. So we're going to start the episode with an interview um, highlighting a medical device company called Anamana and their collaboration with Mayo Clinic. I think next, after and uh, after the uh, Mayo Clinic on Amana interview, we are having a discussion with one of your favorite people and one of my now new favorite <laughs> people, Jeff Elton at Concert AI. Do you mind digging into that for us? Sure. So the company in Concert AI covers AI in the oncology space. And they do a lot of work in the clinical trial space. So I've talked to Jeff. He was like one of the first interviews I had in my current job as editor of the pharma publications at WTWH Media. And I've enjoyed kind of picking his brain on the evolution of AI, like kind of the tools that they're, they're um, running out in the space. And hearing anecdotes, I, I forget the exact anecdote, but something along the lines of how NLP or AI tools are able to 
reduced by a factor of 10, the amount of time that some clinical trial professionals spend at various steps of manually um, inputting data. You can use AI tools to vastly speed up this kind of like patient recruitment and data entry kind of tasks for clinical trials. So, which brings me to a different thought of, I think clinical trials and like drug discovery are two of the hotter areas in pharma for AI. So a lot of potential to speed up the, the clinical trial process, which is one of the drivers of the cost in the space for drug development. So that's really exciting. Um, but I have to stop us because this episode is already far longer than any of our other episodes. We wanted to come out really strong. We wanted to give everybody a sample of um, really what's to come in the entire season. Uh, some of the episodes that we can look forward to feature interviews with Microsoft Azure, GE Healthcare, Medtronic, and so many others. I don't want to give them all away because I want you to keep coming back for more. We are simulcasting this video podcast through Device Talks, but also the main one, AI Meets LifeSci. So that's the one you really want to subscribe to and follow so you don't miss an episode. That's enough of us, Brian. Let us uh, move into our first interview with Mayo Clinic and Anamana, Dr. Paul Freeman of Mayo Clinic and David McMullen of Anamana. Welcome to AI Meets Life Sci, where we explore the transformative impact of artificial intelligence on the life sciences. Like the start of the dot-com revolution when user-friendly browsers like Netscape opened the door to widespread adoption, generative AI technologies like ChatGPT have helped democratize AI, making it accessible to hundreds of millions and completely changing the way we interact with AI and machine learning. In each episode, we'll sit down with medtech, biopharma, and tech companies driving the integration of life sciences and AI. We'll focus on breakthroughs and what's on the horizon, but also guide you past the hype. Join us as we explore and clarify the frontier of AI meets life sci. Welcome to AI meets life sci. Uh, Dave, Dr. Friedman, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm excited to share your news, learn more about your collaboration. But, but before doing so, I want to know more about you. Uh, so Dr. Friedman, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Well, first, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. My name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic. In a former life, I was an electrical engineer. And in my clinical practice, I'm an electrophysiologist, putting in pacemakers, defibrillators, doing catheter ablations, and um, excited to be here. Great. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kayleen. It's, it is fantastic to be here. Dave McMullen, I'm the chief business officer of Onamana. I have a background in business and I've spent my career working in the, in the life sciences area. Worked for many big companies, multinationals, and then for the last seven years I've been doing startups and I've been here since the beginning of Anamana. So I've been at Anamana coming up on uh, three years. Well, speaking to that point, what was your motivation for founding Anamana? I mean, specifically focusing on the AI-driven solutions for our cardiac conditions. You know, Anamana is a company that's been created around a simple but potentially profound vision. And the vision is, can you take the electrical signal of the heart and can you, through that signal, extract clinically relevant information that will help change the way cardiology and the other fields of medicine are practiced? It really is something that has its roots 
in the pioneering work by Dr. Friedman and his team at the Mayo Clinic. And Paul, I'll let you speak more about that. But with that foundation, Mayo Clinic came together with another health tech company called Enference. And those two companies together decided to create a, a new company called Anamana to bring that innovation to the market in the form of new medical devices built as software. So it's collaboration on collaboration on collaboration. That's the theme of today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dave. To that point, Dr. Friedman, uh, so Dave alluded to uh, sort of your experience. Would you mind giving us a little bit more about your background, uh, sure. about your journey in cardiovascular medicine? I know that you also mentioned your engineering background, so I would be intrigued to learn more about that as well and how that sort of led into the medicine journey. Sure. So, um, because of my background in electrical engineering, I was interested in the electrical signals of the heart. And the when I first started my career, I really focused on pacemakers, defibrillators, catheter ablation. It's remarkable what we can do to help people. But as I started seeing the patients coming in, you know, I began to realize, well, if we could detect these conditions earlier, maybe fewer people would need these remarkable but invasive approaches or they could be treated with a lot of the medications that prevent deterioration or the other interventions earlier in the journey so that they can have a longer period of health and wellness. And we um, started doing research closely with an AI scientist. The first one was Dr. Zaki Ateh, who has since built out a team. And he joined me in procedures and he would watch me do an ablation and say, why did you do it that way? And I said, well, that's how I was trained to do this, but why? And through these basic questions and this really tight partnership of our teams of physicians and now there are at least 20 physicians engaged and as i mentioned within mayo eight ai scientists doing what i'll call the r d work we found that we could take an ordinary common ubiquitous widely available test an ecg and apply the tools of artificial intelligence initially a convolutional neural network this is something again where the ai scientists brought to the table and we could identify many conditions often one, two, or three years before we'd otherwise diagnose them. We found this to be true for a weak heart pump, left ventricular dysfunction. We subsequently found it to be true for other conditions like amyloid heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, and we can talk about those later. But that initial work was published in 2019, and it leveraged uh, data science. And essentially, we trained a computer to see subtle, multiple, nonlinear uh, patterns in an ECG that even an expert who's d dedicated his or her life to reading ECGs could not identify. So it was an incredibly powerful test. And we realized that it's a phenomenal research breakthrough, but to actually make it touch lives, to improve the human condition, to have a meaningful impact in medical practice, it required a more, um, well, it required business acumen. It required, you know, doing the clinical trials prospectively, developing it out in a productized manner, getting regulatory approval. And so, as um, Dave mentioned, Mayo Clinic's board approved the creation of Anumana as a company that Mayo Clinic has an interest in, that another tech company has an interest in. We've, we've put together our efforts to build a company to bring this to patients. So this year, 
I mean, I kind of joked at the beginning of the interview that collaboration is the theme of the interview, but I would say the theme of this year is collaboration. And I had just come back from two industry events. You know, I've been in the medical device industry for 16 years, covering all of the different uh, you know, facets and uh, markets within devices. And one of the common themes from these events have been having multiple seats at the table from different perspectives. So technology at the table, with the clinician at the table, with the researcher at the table, with the innovator at the table, and trying to really see uh, how we can solve problems earlier in the stage before later stage interventions are really needed. So the fact Dr. Friedman and Dave, we're, we're talking today, I think is really a testament to that direction we're trying to head. And the, you know, the creation of Anamana is a is a kind of a real world example of this. Everybody has a seat at the table uh, and that's very exciting. Who or how did that even get started? Wow. So it started as a research project. Okay. And, and, and we wanted to see if we could train a computer to identify these patterns. And the way we do it is we feed an ECG into the computer and we have a rich data set that's been reviewed by experts and we say, does this ECG show a weak heart pump? And the computer has no idea, it's gonna guess. And so it'll say, you know, it might guess the ejection fraction, the heart pump strength is 35% in this patient. And during training, we say, no, no, this one is 55%. And so these neural networks then, in order to minimize an error function, just keep tweaking each of these so-called neurons, which is a simple math equation, structured to mimic the human brain in layers. And so it keeps getting closer and closer and closer. So to train takes a lot of data and AI science expertise. And then once the um, once once it's trained, you then have a math equation that you, that you can run on a computer. Once we demonstrated that, the next step was to test it in practice. And to do that, working with the Kern Center, um, headed by Shaoxi uh, Yao and my colleague Peter Noseworthy, we did a clinical trial where we said, let's make this available in the primary care setting. So a number of clinics in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the people, the physicians, the clinicians, were internists, family practitioners, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, no cardiologists, no AI scientists. And we divided the clinics into two groups. And this demonstrated the, the power of this approach because in essence, one group of clinics, whenever they ordered an ECG, that's where you put the stickers on the chest, record the electrical signals of the heart. That test is non-invasive, takes 10 seconds, it's available around the world. Now you can do it on a watch, a smartphone, all that. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. But whenever they would order an ECG for clinical practice, in one group, we said, AI has been run, heart pump is normal, it's healthy. Or AI has been run, there's a weak heart pump. In the other group, we ran it in the background and didn't tell them. And what we found was that first of all, the test in this prospective real world experience was incredibly powerful. We measured the power of a test with the AUC, a treadmill test, common exercise test for heart disease, like a 0.85. This test was a 0.92. One is perfect, so really powerful test. The second thing we found was that those clinicians who had access to this tool were um, a third more likely, 33% more likely to identify this potentially life-threatening condition that neither the physician nor the patient knew was present. So it underscored that in the real world, it can make a difference because there are treatments once you know the condition is present. So it was um, the other observation, by the way, 
was that it could be done rapidly. In the midst of a pandemic, we enrolled over 20,000 people um, because it was software-based and could be rapidly deployed. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll go on and comment later a little bit of our own clinical experience more broadly with this. But again, this was a research study and now to take it to other hospitals, to bring it to the world, to bring these dashboards, which demonstrate the results of this into the electronic health records where clinicians use it as part of their workflow. And that's a critical point because it wasn't training doctors to use new tests. Everyone already knows how to order an ECG. It's a standard common medical test. So it's easy to actually have an impact, but to distribute it widely requires a lot of business and technical expertise. And that's really where Adumana comes to play. Yeah. I'll build on that, uh, Paul. I mean, Kayleen, I was thinking some, sometimes the way I think about it is these, these algorithms can be uh, difficult to build because you, you need to have you need to have the right question that you're going after. You need to have the right data to answer that question. And then you need the expertise, the clinical expertise and the engineering expertise. Uh, that's just one step in bringing a new innovation to the marketplace. And that is a difficult step, but the other steps can be just as difficult. And as Dr. Friedman just described, one of the steps that often uh, can be overlooked and is most difficult is will this technology actually move the needle in the real world? And, and that is precisely what has been shown through the Eagle study at Mayo Clinic is possible uh, with this technology, and in particular with low ejection fraction. Uh, the third piece, which is also required and can be very difficult is can this technology be developed in a way that is medical grade? So can it actually be cleared by the FDA with all of the checks and balances that are part of that process and ensure things like the algorithm hasn't been overtrained, that it ensure that it does not have biases in it, ensure that when the algorithm is and the software that's designed for, to house the algorithm is engaging with clinicians, uh, do they understand the output correctly? Um, do they understand how to utilize it in their day-to-day? -day? And, and together, Mayo Clinic and Anamana, we're going about solving those things. And the reason we're doing it in that fashion is because our end mission is to make sure that this technology does become available. Our goal is to have it in the future be part of standard of care. We would like every time an ECG to be taken, that the healthcare providers are absolutely maximizing the, the amount of information that they can get from that test uh, to, to benefit the patients. And with low ejection fraction, just to continue to build on what Dr. Friedman was saying, for example, uh, Anamana working together with Mayo Clinic, we also did a clinical validation study, which was a multi-site study uh, across the United States, had data from uh, 16,000 patients, and those patients were very diverse. So the diversity in that, in that study actually came close to mimicking the diversity distribution in the United States. And the reason you want to do that is you want to ensure that the neural network that you've created uh, is not overtrained on one data set, but can be applicable very broadly. And with low ejection fraction, that's exactly what we demonstrated. So the performance numbers that uh, Dr. Friedman alluded to, those stood up at other health systems when we tested it on the data from other health systems. It also stood up in various uh, segments 
of the population testing it against uh, different ethnicities, uh, for example. Just maybe step back a minute and look at this philosophically. There, have, there are appropriate concerns about artificial intelligence and bias. And um, my feeling is if we do this right, this will bring humanity together and, and something that's so important, especially these days. And um, we specifically did a research study looking at, does it work well in self-reported African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics? Uh, and it turns out it does. And then we've collaborated with colleagues in South America, Asia, South Asia, East Asia, South Asia, uh, Europe, and found that it's robust across all uh, those populations. So we want to ensure that it works across the diversity and the entirety of humanity. And, um, and there are published references for all, all of these projects. And, and of course, Dave referred to the specific one that for the Food and Drug Administration. But there are also these other R&D efforts to sh that I think, now we can't assume that'll be true for every AI algorithm. We have to test each of these, but at least this um, low ejection fraction screen has a, a really impressive level of robustness. And one of the really interesting projects, one that is sort of gripping to me on a, an emotional level, is work that's still early, it's still research, but my colleague in Florida, Demi Adedinsewo, um, she's a cardiologist originally from Nigeria, and she did two fascinating studies. The first, screening a small number, 100 pregnant women in the United States for a condition called peripartium cardiomyopathy, a weak heart pump that can develop during pregnancy. Turns out that it was present in 6%, which is a huge number when you think about the number of pregnant women every year of people. And now, tiny study, we can't draw excessive conclusions. Equally striking was that the AIECG, the simple 10-second non-invasive test, identified in this small sample every case. And so think about what that means because heart failure, a weak heart pump, manifests as dizziness, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, swelling of the legs. So does pregnancy. So it's often hard to diagnose. She's just completed a study not yet published of a thousand women in Nigeria with similar findings. So I think we're gonna find more and more that these types of tools help us identify conditions for which Untreated, there can be dire consequences. Treated, there are multiple well-established, evidence-based, prospective randomized trials showing that medication, devices, other interventions can improve the quality of life, keep people out of the hospital, stop people from dying. And in the last example I gave you, you have two people, the unborn infant or the newly born infant and the mother whose lives are, you know, can be at risk. So it's a, a really powerful uh, potential. Now, again, early, I don't want to overstate it because we have established data in adults with a weak heart pump that it works well. In pregnant women, it looks incredibly promising, but we need to do more work still. So this milestone is not just a literal FDA milestone, but a figurative milestone for just the beginning of what you can accomplish uh, using this particular algorithm as the uh, roadmap. It's a, I think we're on the cusp of a paradigm shift of really detecting disease early. And we're just learning how to apply AI tools in healthcare. And, you know, in contrast to the tech world where you, you know, move fast and break things, we want to move fast and cure things and heal things. And so we have to be very thoughtful and methodical and do and obtain clinical evidence. But it's coming and it's coming faster and faster. And, and 
um, I, I do believe we're poised to make some important differences in how we approach identifying disease and then uh, using a lot of the interventions that are now being developed. Well, you mentioned uh, clinical data. So is there anything else about the Eagle study that you'd like to share with our audience? I know we touched on it a little bit, but is there any insights or anything else you want to communicate? Sure. So first, um, the deployment was rapid, as I mentioned earlier, because it's using clinical workflows. And I think as we do more and more of this, it'll be really important because any clinician I've ever met, and I'm sure you've experienced this in talking to your own healthcare providers or friends or colleagues, everyone is swamped. So we need to make sure that this can be done in a way that helps clinicians and helps patients and doesn't add to workflow, ideally not train people on new test ordering. Dave, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Dr. Freeman, I think one of the ways that that was shown in that study, in Eagle study on uh, re resourcing, was that there, there has been a question, you know, if you implement AI on ECGs, what will be the next step? Because with low ejection fraction, the next step is to do an echocardiogram. And so some ask the question, you know, when you put this AI into practice, will the healthcare providers actually order more echocardiograms? And that can be a challenge because many health systems are actually capacity constrained when it comes to their echocardiogram department. There can be waiting lines uh, to get that a procedure done. Fascinatingly enough, in the Eagle study, where you have this control arm of standard of care versus the intervention arm, the overall volume of echoes that both groups were ordering remained the same. And the number of patients who were uh, correctly uh, diagnosed with the low ejection fraction was higher when the AI intervention was taking place. And so you do have this uh, observation that with the AI, it's actually taking perhaps maybe the way I would say it, Dr. Freeman, is some of the guessing out of it when a case uh, is maybe uh, nonspecific symptoms and things like that, the healthcare provider needs to make a judgment of what to do. Should I order an echo or should I send the patient home? Um, and in this instance, in Eagle, those echoes were being ordered on patients where that echo was able to confirm a diagnosis of low ejection fraction. And it was an improvement over standard of care. And we've really been focusing on the low EF, which is the best study, the, the one that's FDA approved now. But there, there are a slew of other um, conditions for which there, is, um, there are publications and evidence showing that it can work. Um, I mentioned three conditions earlier for which there are drug treatments. Um, the other, uh, and that is um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, amyloid heart disease, and um, pulmonary hypertension. Now, the interesting thing, as I mentioned, we're learning how to use them, is some of those conditions are very uncommon, so that even if you have a test that's very, very strong, like in um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the area under the curve is 0.96. I mean, it's better than almost any medical test we have. If a condition is present in you know one in ten thousand one in a hundred thousand depending on who you're screening then you can imagine the a test that simply always said no would almost always be right because it's such a rare condition and so when it does say it's positive we also looked at the positive predictive value and we're learning how we can look at other clinical factors at the same time and doing research to how to best use these in the real world um, so i think as i mentioned will these will 
be impactful and we'll continue to learn how to best utilize these tests as uh, time goes on. Um, lastly, maybe one of the most in interesting ones in some ways is a screen for silent atrial fibrillation. That is, you can do an ECG while the heart rhythm is normal and it can tell you what the ECG would look like at other times. And um, it's important because that condition, atrial fibrillation, that irregular heartbeat is associated with stroke. And there are current medications that are very effective at preventing stroke and new ones that in a number of large studies look even safer and more promising. So I think there's a lot of room to potentially change the paradigm in how we treat those conditions, where we would monitor people for long periods of time looking for this condition, and maybe we could uh, do an AI-ECG. There's early evidence to suggest we could do that to identify who has enough what I'll call hidden heart disease or not yet well detected by our imaging studies that could um, guide treatment. But that's, that's towards the future. Well, it's very encouraging, so thank you for sharing that. It did spark a question, so I'm quite curious when developing uh, an algorithm, especially something like this, how does the influence of Mayo Clinic work with an innovator like yourself, Dave? So how, how, does, how is Mayo's um, influence in developing and validating the algorithm? How does that affect it? I mean, when we established Anamana, we licensed in a tremendous amount of, of technology from the pioneering work that Dr. Freeman's group had done. At Anamana, our goal was to translate that into medical devices, and there was a significant amount of work uh, to make that happen. Uh, we're also continuing the research and development, but we work with Mayo Clinic as partners. They're advisors to us, because in, at every step of the way, what we want to do is identify, and Dr. Freeman has touched on this a bit, but identify diseases for which action can be taken when they're known to be present. And in order to do that, you need to blend your engineering AI capability uh, with access to the necessary data to investigate a, a certain potential indication with uh, clinical thinking. Because you, you have to do the work in a way that can be translated into a real world setting in the end. And for that, we work very, very closely with uh, Mayo Clinic. Uh, we talk about the indications we're going after. We talk about how to define the right cohorts to do the investigations we need to do. But then also, like when we design any kind of study, we work very closely together to ensure that the protocol makes sense, uh, that it will create the data and show us the outcome that we're, we're looking for. And the pioneering team at uh, Mayo Clinic uh, doesn't just include the clinicians. So we do work with uh, Zaki, uh, Atia, and uh, Dr. Lopez Jimenez uh, on matters that also touch on like how we actually do the AI engineering and how we design the software to interface with clinical workflows uh, so that we ensure that everything we're developing can be translated into the real world setting. Because in the end, our goal is to have a positive impact on the care of patients in ushering in this new uh, technology. Excellent. I, I know that you had mentioned that a little bit in the beginning, so it helps bring it full circle for me. So I appreciate that. So knowing what we know now today, 
What do you actually see as the future of AI and machine learning when it comes to cardiovascular care in just five years? Where do you think we might be? Yeah. Um, So I see there may be broadly speaking two kinds of AI, predictive and generative. And what we've mostly been talking about is predictive. And with predictive, essentially, um, the AI looks at a standard test and upskills it. So an ECG, an inexpensive um, easy to obtain test can do what an echocardiogram or CT or MRI can. And then we can see if it's getting it right or not, right? Because if the AI read of the ECG says there's a weak heart pump, we can then do the echo and see is it right or not. So those tests, I think, um, not I think, are now approved and will be inter- integrating into practice fairly rapidly because um, they're just so useful, practical, and predictable. Generative AI, I think, will be very transformative, but it's a little farther behind. Because when you ask, for example, a a generative AI, you know, write a haiku for me, it'll do it. But how do you judge if it's a good one or not? And one one of the issues, of course, with generative AI, and I think it's a solvable problem, but we're not quite there yet, is that of hallucinations. And I'll give you a very real example. We had a patient who we wanted to apply a specific fibrillator to, um, one that goes under the skin as opposed to down into the heart. And we asked a generative AI, um, has this been done immediately after heart surgery and what's the experience with it? Um, and it said, yes, it's been safely done. And here, there was a study with 24 patients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We said, oh, give us the reference. And it did. And it was a very legitimate looking reference, right? Journal of Cardiac Electrophysiology 2019 with names of people we know. And then we looked up the reference and it didn't exist because it's designed to, you know, saying it fills in the next word is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it is designed to create realistic looking sentences. And in medicine, we have to make sure we get it right. So the generative AI work in medicine is coming. I think we'll even as early as next year, we'll start seeing some early use cases and it will be doing things like summarizing data and pulling out key facts and data. Um, but I believe it's farther behind and we'll have to be very thoughtful about how we test it, vet it, and validate it because it's critical for any new tool in medicine. As I mentioned, we want to cure, not break things. So those are my two cents. But I, I do see this sequential evolution that will empower all of us in healthcare to hopefully spend more time talking to people rather than clicking in computers and use that time more effectively to identify important conditions because our tools will be more helpful to us. Giving humans more time to be human? That's what we do best, right? (laughs) Exactly, great, thank you. Well, congratulations again to the two of you. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today and sharing all these incredible advancements. You're checking all the box from innovation to reimbursement and beyond. Thank you again for your passion, enthusiasm, and for joining us on AI Meets LifeSci. Thank you. Thank you, Kayleen. Thank you, Kayleen. It's been fantastic. It's always encouraging to hear about these collaborations, uh, taking two different entities to come together and move health forward. What were your thoughts, Brian? I've heard this kind of concept in data science for some time now of like, it's not just the technology, it's the domain plus the technology. And I think this interview kind of captures that where you have Mayo Clinic coming in, you have a startup, you have this 
this kind of like disciplined focus on ECG and deep learning. So I think it's a good kind of case study of that basic principle. So what do we have next? Oh, next we sit down with Jeff Elton, CEO of Concert AI. Welcome to the inaugural episode. I'm here today with my co-host, Brian Bunce, and I'm Kayleen Brown, Managing Editor of Device Talks. And we are so thrilled to be speaking with the CEO of Concert AI, Dr. Jeff Elton. Dr. Elton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So pleased to be here on your inaugural show. So uh, I'm curious about your opinion as to where we are now in terms of AI adoption in life sciences. Yeah, so... Um... It's pretty much in every headline everywhere. And, you know, you got like the, you know, the spooky things that everybody's going to lose their job. And the only thing you'll be able to be is a short order cook. And then all of a sudden they show that even short order cooks are going to be vulnerable to uh, the fact that you can kind of do something. So in life sciences and healthcare, let me start there just because that's kind of where I kind of spend my life. There is a broad general acceptance that artificial intelligence both is a tool that generates insights that allows you to understand processes. So as an example, we can take a look at a patient population that has an adverse event or severe adverse event. There may be a hypothesis in the literature that that adverse event is associated with a comorbidity like cardiovascular diabetes or, or something of that nature. But when you actually begin to use some of the technologies that can establish causality, you may find, and this is actually a real example for some of our work, that it could be comorbidities and, say, other factors like immunological factors or the immune state of the individual and the immune condition of the individual. That's not in the literature. So typically, when we're doing biostatistical and neoclassical analyses, which is what we do when we're not doing AI, it's really derived from experimentation literature and kind of derived over long numbers of period of time, where in the case of AI, I can now begin to find associative and relationships and causality built into it. And as long as one can start to determine, is that just become a mathematical relationship? Is there actually a process in disease biology and other characteristics where that really actually adds an insight? You now can begin to see those things. So in life sciences, particularly translational medicine, early clinical development, there's a lot of use of AI. And there's actually as, as a primary tool to complement other tools that we're doing. Now on the clinical side, AI is in use. I mean, FDA a couple months ago produced a listing of all FDA approved AI algorithms, uh, particularly in radiological imaging, where actually features and images can actually take a very narrow interpretation. And there were roughly 650 of them that were approved that are in some form of production. If I use the word production, that means somebody's using them in a software stack or an imaging interpretation stack, et cetera. If you were to go into Memorial Sloan Kettering, their own team of radiologists working with the medical team develops their own AI algorithms that they'll use to aid their interpretation, get higher confidence, kind of assure they don't miss features and other characteristics. So on the healthcare side, in the provider setting, in some very real, transparent, FDA-approved ways, it's actually in production. In the payer area, if you're doing claims processing and reviews of claims, et cetera, AI kind of came into that area some time ago, but it's definitely become you know much higher use in terms of just understanding whether somebody should be, a uh, claim should be allowed or a pre-authorization should just pass through because it's all routine and the normal standard of care. And in that case, it adds value to the payer and adds 
value to the patient because they're getting their prior authorization, you know, much more rapidly, almost simultaneous with the request and things of that nature. So generally, you know, we're in, these are fields with lots of data that are being accessible and those data sit in lots of little stove piped areas. And the nice thing about AI is if it's now all been brought into a cloud environment, so if you kind of go back and say, what have we been doing over the last 10, 15 years? Well, digital brought cloud. Cloud took a lot of things that were premises-based technical solutions, put them all into cloud infrastructure. Now different applications all exist in the same cloud environment. They may even be in a secure virtual private cloud environment. Now I can bring technologies that can go through those little stovepipe data lake, you know, pods and actually begin to add value and utility in ways that we couldn't do before. So the 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 use of this didn't actually come just suddenly up here. It's been enabled by a lot of underlying changes that have actually allowed it to kind of come to the forefront. So more of an iterative process as opposed to kind of a shift yeah. from then to now. Yeah, it's not a then, yeah, it's it's been enabled by other transformation and changes that we've been kind of putting into place over the course of the last 15 years, so. It's interesting watching the pace and the projections. Like I recall, yeah. I think Jeffrey Hinton, like the godfather of AI or deep learning said in 2016, like AI will replace radiologists. And I just had an interview with a, a big medical device company and a Google um, executive yesterday was saying that's more kind of what you said earlier, augmentation. It's more yeah. like helping with workflows and driving lower error rates and diagnostics. Yeah. But um, it's interesting how many experts in the field have had kind of broad statements about it's going this way and the field is evolving in ways that are hard to predict or maybe yeah. not so simple as replacing. <laughs> you mentioned that fear earlier, like it's going to replace people. It's more like it's going to yeah. redefine workflows. I, I, I'm i kind of more in that direction, Brian. Um, I was with a clinical network for party yesterday afternoon and uh, one of the research directors in that clinical network suddenly kind of, you know, paused and said, your set of tools that connect electronic medical records, bring and process data using AI natural language processing and auto populate what are called electronic case report forms, which are used to went during the course of clinical research. And then that gets published to an electronic data capture. So these are all different systems from companies. We we automated that. So we actually could actually kind of create AI, NLP, and approaches that effectively can read PDF documents and other source documents and then write that into the electronic case report forms. But FDA regulations and other require the research team recon reconfirm it. But her comment was, this has made our research team extraordinarily effective. We can actually have more studies underway and with you know three to four times the number of studies on the same research base, but also they're spending the time with the patient as opposed to the time typing in, looking at an EMR and then typing it in to a portal of a biopharma sponsor running that particular clinical trial. So when you think about that, what was the gain or the loss? Is it a loss that that person is not typing in when they're doing it? No, the law, they're actually spending time with the patient. They're engaged in the process and having more trials also gives patient more options between standard of care or going on a clinical trial. And for the sponsors, it means trials get conducted more quickly. And so therefore we understand whether that medicine's gonna bring benefit and we can get it to the patient faster. So in this particular case, 
we're not taking jobs away. We're actually allowing people to allocate the effort to the thing that's actually more meaningful that in terms of what's there and less time in the high redundant, less, you know, I, would, I don't want to call it waste, but less value adding activities than they would have been otherwise. So it's a fantastic example. I didn't really think about the element of AI enabling humans to be more human. And that's really what I, I was think actually thinking saying. of that term, Kayleen, as I was saying that. But I think the question is, can you return a little bit of the of the humanity to the process or the area where the human interaction actually is actually now bringing value or comfort or precision? I guess me chills. I love that. <laughs> fantastic. What trends or developments just in general at a 30,000 foot view? Sure do you see uh, coming up in the life sciences landscape? So, yeah, I'll stay on the life sciences side and we can probably even kind of click over a little bit to even some of the healthcare side too. Um, so, and again, I'll go back to Brian's comment where he used the word generative. So generally speaking, we don't think, you know, we're not seeing a wholesale shift from one form of AI to quote a different form of AI. Not everything's gonna be, you know, underpinned by, you know, GPT 4.0 or 4.X or, you know, whatever it may be the case. We do see these being kind of mixes of alternative approaches. So generative AI is actually really strong and good because it can incorporate lots of information extremely rapidly. And if you've got actually the domain in which generative is being deployed, it can even give a context to data and then other approaches that may have a higher accuracy rate, higher, higher accuracy and recall, can be deployed with it. So in fact, we, we believe we're going to see blending of different approaches, which actually will give greater utility. And that's kind of generally, I don't think that's going to stop. And I don't think, you know, again, we're going to not stop innovating too. And there's not just one class of generative. Generative can mean different things, and it's been around in different forms. And so, I, again, cycles, and I think, you know, this idea of like, What's our cycle time? The half-life of technologies definitely is getting smaller. So this notion of how long will that particular solution represent the way of working, that actually half-life is going to go down. So when we think about it, we think about it kind of coming in and saying, I want to use AI to process data and take what we call unstructured data, which would be text, things that's not out of the box, machine readable. I want to turn that into forms that are machine readable and then I may want to bring co-pilots or narrowly deployed solutions to a class of question. And we're trying to actually turn that into something where natural language interaction with a system actually allows it to be almost like a problem-solving partner to the life sciences researcher. So you're kind of engaging with it in a conversational tone because that's natural. And we know how to do that. And the response back actually allows the interaction. Now, as you make those interactions and whatever you're doing, we kind of tend to think about everything we do trains for everything else we do. So each interaction in itself yields information to whomever you know issued the query and they're hopefully getting to a problem or a framing or a decision that they're trying to kind of get to. Could be something as simple as identification of clinical sites to select for running, a, say a research study. But when, as you're going through the process and the observation about what they accept as a final answer or don't accept as a final answer in itself can create its own annotations and its own kind of record, which actually allows you to accelerate the learning 
that actually some of the models themselves are doing. We do the same thing with, say, when we're doing natural language processing and humans interact with a system or we're in a clinical trial, if something gets corrected, that correction actually is a learning moment for the system itself. So you've actually, this is also where it's collapsing the time it actually takes to get to the point of actually improvement. So that is actually going to be a pretty interesting part where we actually think about systems themselves kind of taking on the same maturation learning transformational kind of view we used to think about when we code a software as a service solution etc that's my architecture and that architecture has an underlying data model and underneath it i transform things i move things i publish things and i send out reports on things but in this particular case you will actually find more changes based on actually seeing the incremental changes and improvement where the actual system and the process in the system itself evolve much more rapidly than static software as a service solutions used to actually go. That's actually one of the main differences between digital, where we used to be able to take everything and try to put it into a set of automated workflows where we're literally piping data around to actually AI-based kind of application environments where they will change and transform just as a, as a function of their use and scale and utility. Before we do a deep dive, I want this 40,000 foot level view. What problem in its essence is Concert AI trying to solve? Yeah. So, um, you know, problem number one is how do we accelerate biomedical innovations? And how do we make sure that the accelerated biomedical innovations get to the patients who will be the beneficiaries and kind of keep things away from patients that will either not be a beneficiary or for whom it may represent kind of a negative uh, kind of benefit for it. And probably the final part is all that implies insights, insights in the nature of different solutions applying insights, applying solutions is hard, actually. It's not easy. Even if you know something, it's not always easy to put that into practice. So I think the other part of this is how do you put it into practice? How do you actually make you know, the yield on the insight kind of move over to the application area as seamlessly and as effectively as possible so really the benefits can be really fully realized in that self. Jeff, I recall an anecdote that you shared about there was an expiration of Gen AI that increased, I may forget the details, but the productivity of a clinical trial coordinator by 10x or some massive amount. And with that kind of thought in mind, I'm curious about how Concert AI in general uses AI to kind of enhance productivity in clinical trials. Yeah, so, um, you know, we try to do things that try to make the AI work and think as close to what a human would do, not in replacement of a human, but to take super arduous work. And let me give you an example. Let's talk about matching a patient to a clinical trial. If you looked at a trial protocol or the actual study protocol, and you know those of the kind of listeners here would do that, you can find some of these online and you can find them in clinicaltrials.gov in different areas. They can get very complicated. They can have what are called 60 to 70 levels of inclusion, exclusion criteria of saying, you know, who's eligible to kind of come into that particular trial, et cetera. Um, when that kind of comes together for, our, for a person at a research site, which is usually providing care to a patient, but also happens to do research, when a person kind of comes in, 
they are reading these criteria, but it requires them to go in 20, 30, 40 different locations inside a letter electronic medical record environment. So they're going into areas that they can read in drop downs, but they're having to go click through multiple pages and tabs, go look at a PDF document, read sections in that PDF document. You'll see them making handwritten notes on a on a kind of a notebook as they're beginning to do it. And they're sketching out to go through and say they made a determination. It can take anywhere from four to 12 hours just to confirm that one individual patient actually may meet all the criteria for eligibility on a particular clinical study. Now imagine you're an institution, you're running 50 to 100 studies. Imagine that you have you know, 20,000 to 50,000 newly diagnosed patients a year coming through the institution, and you get an idea about why trial participation rates can be between 1.5% to 5% in kind of what are called research-centric but community kind of based environments. It's very hard, it's really difficult. Now, with artificial intelligence and different categories of models, I can put those technologies right behind their firewall. So, you know, we don't practice shipping large amounts of personal health information around the internet, very conservative in the posture, but we can bring our technologies and what we kind of call a distributed federated edge solution model. And we bring natural language processing models, AI models, study specific configurations of those models that essentially go through and continuously every 24, 48 hours, we're reading the records of all the patients who are actually coming in for clinical visits, et cetera, and we're assessing whether they have the eligibility criteria, but even more than that, to make it easier, we're actually showing and giving little hyperlinks back to where in the source record exactly did that kind of confirmed status of eligibility. Now, we're not telling them it's the answer. We're presenting the, we call it the evidence and the evidence drawer that comes forward. We're giving it to them, but we're also giving it to them as intuitive a way as possible and aiding the reconfirmation of that. And that's what we do for kind of current eligibility, but we've been able to take it to the next level, which is there may be a lab value or two that actually may say they're not eligible based on that, but the system, we build a system to know that those values will be taken over and over and over over the course of their treatment, and they tend to trend in different directions over the course of treatment too. So that allows us to create a watch list and say, you're not eligible now, but the ones that are there are variables that perform such that they're gonna change again. So we're, we're gonna watch, or we can see patients that are not responding, unfortunately, to the current standard of care, and we can see values indicating they're not a beneficiary of the standard of care therapeutics that they were administered to, so they're going to be discontinued on that. They'll either pick a different treatment or look for a clinical trial. So we're actually doing surveillance of that and keeping them in front of the clinical team. Again, we're not making the decision. We're taking vast amounts of very complex, hard to access information. And, you know, and Brian, you probably know, electronic medical records were never designed for research. They were actually, they were built for doing coding and scheduling. So they were never designed to help people do this kind of work. So we're trying to get around a whole kludginess that had a whole different design ethos and try to actually you know, make them perform in a way that's now much easier. What else is something that uh, we might be seeing here in your pipeline soon? Yeah. So, um, you know, we spent a lot of time helping uh, design registrational trials. So you'll actually see some of the generative capability, more AI capabilities kind of coming into our solutions that help design clinical trials, clinical studies, optimize the parameters, make sure that they can be run in a community setting, not just in 
National Cancer Institute designated cancer center, optimizing, picking which particular clinical sites and areas were run. I think our patient matching solutions will be a huge beneficiary of this. I mean, so we're getting into super complicated hematological malignancy trials as well as solid tumor trials. And I'm very excited about the fact that we're actually going to be able to really complement the work of a lot of these research groups. And we're now meeting with academic centers, community centers, and they've been engaging in the work we've been doing. And that's just been incredibly fulfilling. And I think that's an area that we're really redoubling our effort. We are actually at about 55% automation of all clinical trial data today. And I don't even know, Brian, what I told you last time, but we're about 55%. We'll be at 75%. In the beginning of quarter one, full automation of all trial data being kind of rectified. We'll kind of figure out how to close that last 25%. And so we're, you know, wildly excited. The fact that we're making clinical trials more accessible, the fact that we actually can actually augment and allow people to spend time on the things they should be. Um, I think as we start going in our medical, we do a lot of work with medical imaging, imaging interpretation. And we're bringing some of those solutions over to the life sciences research side. You can start finding features in medical imaging, even if it's an image. So you're talking about radiological acquired image that may be a clue into genomic status. You're actually starting to get into the ability to find just other features and functions that tell you more about that particular cancer, what they may respond, not respond to. And if I can link that data with actual actual genomic data and clinical data, we can really start changing how people go into the clinic, how they actually even kind of target a narrow subpopulation, how they identify what the right comparator group is, and just have a greater depth of understanding right at the very beginning before that actually occurs that actually wouldn't have been possible, you know, even three, four, five years ago. And I think that actually gives that's that's great for the regulatory agencies to actually be able to kind of, you know, be the beneficiaries of kind of going across that, but it also gives more confidence that you're taking a program that is going to likely work because everybody knows there's a high failure rate in this. I'm doing that now with the Inflation Reduction Act too, which actually sort of requires that you actually have a high incremental benefit or you'll never get reimbursed as you go into that world. This idea that you truly have a have a real logical basis of believing that your benefit is substantially greater than the current standard of care, which is actually what we should have always been doing. But this is now part of the thinking of the process. And a lot of this is starting to enable greater confidence in those sorts of things as well. So, you know, again, lots, lots of points of value that we're really focusing on right now and really trying to bring this up to scale and get it integrated into the standard ways of working. So reducing that failure rate is huge. It's like one out of 10 or so succeeded traditionally. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. So, you know, and again, you know, our goal, as you even said at the very beginning here, uh, kind of this whole thing, I mean, Kayleen, our goal here, you know, we're, we, we sit between two ecosystems, right? On the one side, we work very closely with the healthcare providers and research sites. They're our partners. And we also deliver solutions to them. We work with biopharma innovators. So for us, our job is really to be this sort of virtuous, you know, intermediate area that's kind of making that whole process that much more effective. And here, we're not, you know, historically, in my, when I started my career, finding a 10% improvement was considered, that's oh, not bad, you know, 10%. You know, we not here, we're, we're kind of, you know, people are talking about 3, 4X, or I can complete studies in half the time. And when you do that, 
this doesn't lead to cost reductions. It actually leads to more medicines being available in a shorter period of time with more confidence in actually the results in what you pull through. That's all, I mean, that's all goodness. That's why we're here, man, you know, so. I have said it better myself. In life sciences, I, I tend to think that the stakeholders in life sciences are more innovative. This, there's a, in, there's a resistance to adopting AI. And although I don't understand it personally, and I think uh, neither do the two of you, because uh, we really embrace it and we see what it can do. And you've cited so many examples of how it's already working in the favor of life sciences mm -hmm. and to better health outcomes. Do you have any advice or anything that you can say to the stakeholders who are holding back or resistive? Sure. Um, so, yeah, you're, the way you frame the question, Kayleen, is kind of is great, actually, because you're in an industry that is cracking the back of some of the toughest questions and problems, and you're doing it because you're trying to bring benefit to a patient, right? So it's a very high innovation. You talk to anybody in life sciences, they're passionate about why they work here, but scientists in certain domain in certain areas can also arrive with a conservatism because they've also been trained about research methods and documentation methods and a variety of ways of working. And it's a regulated industry. And so oftentimes people in a regulated industry uh, tend to kind of freeze in a certain model way of working because they know it's okay. And it's been validated by 40 other companies and different agency interactions. So when you take those things, you you have high innovation and you have some people that are really looking in and really trying to kind of practice the back, but you also have some things that really kind of create some lock-in to different ways of working, thinking, and doing things. Now, what's interesting is if you kind of look at, say, if I go to some of the leading academic medical centers, and if I was in Memorial Sloan Kettering at Stanford or in the other areas, you would actually find their use and embracing and acceptance that AI is going to be a part of the way that their world works very high. Uh, again, you know, I made a reference that Memorial Sloan Kettering will develop their own AI and radiomics models for aiding doing clinical interpretation in their own institution for their own patient. This is one of the leading cancer centers conducting more clinical trials, probably seeing more patients per year than almost any other single center in the world and one of the hardest set of diseases with one of the highest rate of publication activities. And there's a deep embracing of the value it can bring, the insights, the consistency, the support of quality, not missing features and, and kind of different characteristics. So I say that and I look at that because when your people are doing the things that are most critical, most actually time acute and most outcome centric are actually embracing it almost more than any other part of kind of healthcare and life sciences. And so to a certain degree, again, when you go into an industry that's that regulated and has people with that kind of training that sometimes develops a conservatism, already you're finding some that are leading and moving themselves where they're integrating this as part of the way they're working. So it's not, it's a, it's a, it's a by organization, by organizational culture thing today. And the thing I would say confidently is there's nothing irresponsible about introducing this into your, in fact, it is only responsible to actually make sure you're developing the competence and the expertise. And the responsibility is really where, where is it still what you're going to call experiments versus where is it 
starting to inform and change what your actual operating model is, ways of working, roles of the organization, maybe even organizational structure, because it does impact workflows substantially. And I think, you know, we're, we're seeing the leaders emerging in that particular field. And maybe at another time, we uh, kind of get some of those leaders to work with you and come on here for, you know, session number two or something of that nature as you're kind of going into that, three, four. Um, but I think as you're kind of doing that, and you've always had people that are kind of in the middle waiting for the leaders to see that they survive the transition and some others that will kind of, you know, pick up the pick up in the rear end. But I think right now I'm actually more seeing, you know, more utility. We have people now that are, in fact, we're involved in a couple of projects today where actually we're finding patients using AI on sort of past data where the current standard of care would never have them use next generation sequencing until much later, but I can use existing data in AI and find ones that have a 0.85 or 85% likelihood of having that particular feature and kind of capability. We have another company that is actually has an AI model that's being validated prospectively coincident with the way the clinical trial is being run. So when the actual medicine, assuming it gets proved and kind of goes through it, there will actually be algorithmic approaches to identifying the patients most likely to be a responder that actually be developed actually as an AI model. So you're finding all sorts of cases here saying these are evolving pretty far, pretty deeply, and really indicating that there's going to be a pretty major transformation in how things work. And again, for me, I look at these examples, all goodness, and it's actually bringing tremendous benefit. So. Well, that makes me feel so optimistic about our future and the future of life sciences. I only want you to leave our conversation that way. <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time, thank you, sharing your experience, uh, what you're doing with Concert AI. We wish you the very, very best. And uh, no you, doubt Kelly. we're going to be circling back to hear the uh, other amazing outcomes uh, that you are surely walking into within the next year. We would be happy to do it. So, Kaylee, thanks very much, Brian. Thank you, too, very much. One. It was definitely the longest episode of our season uh, that we will have, but we wanted to come out strong and share multiple perspectives on how AI is being integrated into the life sciences. But with that, uh, we have episode, episode two coming out in three weeks. We will be interviewing the uh, global business leader and general manager of healthcare pharma life sciences at Microsoft Azure. I can't wait for that interview. We'll also be exploring the other aspects of how AI is being integrated into the life sciences. So please make sure, audience, uh, to follow us on all of the major social media platforms. You can find us on Device Talks. You can find us on Drug Discovery and Development. Uh, please follow us on all the major podcast platforms. Season one is going to be simulcasted on Device Talks, and then it's home, AI Meets Life Sci. So please make sure to follow AI Meets Life Sci on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and on YouTube as well. Um, follow me and Brian. I'm Kayleen Brown, Managing Editor for Device Talks. Brian, who are you? I'm Brian Bunce, Pharma Editor at WTWH Media. 
So please reach out, out to us directly how you can contribute to the series. We would be very happy to tell your story. Please reach out. Uh, thank you for listening in and a huge mega uber thank you to all of our sponsors for supporting AI Meets Life Sci. If we didn't have you, we wouldn't be able to make this incredible content. So thank you to our contributors and our sponsors, and we will see you in three weeks talking with Microsoft Azure.